1: Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn Genesis chapter 9. I speak about the hubris of man. I love that word. In Genesis, we find that God has been displaying His character through the world He has created and in His interaction with the human race. We're now going to continue the narrative as God works through Noah and his family to accomplish His purpose of sending a Savior to redeem the human race from the curse of sin and death. Again, that's a major theme of the story, capital S, that we've been seeing in Scripture. We ended last week with God's covenant with all of creation to not destroy the earth with water again. However, remember, we left that one day there will be another judgment. We are not past the judgment, but not that He will judge the world with water. And He has now commanded Noah and his sons to be fruitful, to multiply... And now to do something different, it has always been to be fruitful and multiply, but now he adds a little different wordage, so to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And Though the earth has been cleansed with raging waters in judgment of the corruption and violence that was rampant, we find that sin still has deep roots in the heart of man. No water is powerful enough to cleanse the human heart. Noah and his family have a new fresh start. Wouldn't you like a new fresh? How many of you have ever wished for a fresh new start? Yeah, I have. And I got both hands up on that one. I have many, many times. There's many times I thought, you know, if I had this, if I could do this, then life would be perfect. But the only thing is every time I do that, or if that were to happen, I would still be there. And my life would be the same. But no one here has something that you and I Will never experience, or maybe not experience in such a way. They have a new, fresh start. The first few years after the flood must have been a very tough one as they begin to carve out in a living in a world that underwent tremendous change. As we saw last week, the time of peace and harmony between man and animals is gone. Fear and dread now separates God's creation from each other in very two important ways. The first one is man's diet has changed from eating simple vegetables and fruits to now eating meat from the animals. And number two, man has a responsibility to be brother keepers, which brings weighty responsibility as they are now to govern each other in valuing life. And Father, we ask as we do the hard task now, of diving into chapters 9, 10, 11. Lord, that You'd open our hearts to Your Word, not for just information, but Lord, transformation. Lord, let the, my study and let my work be in it. Lord, be one that would be glorifying to You. May the way that we listen this morning be glorifying to You. Give us sharp ears and attentive hearts. Do the hard work of working and preparing the soil and fill up what's ever lacking in any of our abilities, as we seek the truth of Moses' narrative of Noah and his family and the rest of Genesis, I want to share with you several things here in, uh, as we go through. Here. We're going to look at three things in the passages of chapter 9, 10, 11. Now, we had done almost half, or a little bit more than half, of chapter 9 last week, but I want you to turn to chapter 9, look at verses 18, and the first thing that I want to share with you that's something that you need to understand. And if you're taking notes, this is what you want to write down. Sin has far-reaching consequences. Sin has far-reaching consequences. And there's three things that we find in this passage how that is true. The first one is found in chapter 9, look at verse 18, where he says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Jatham, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. And what we're going to see is sin has far-reaching consequences that you and I cannot calculate. And in that, we need to see as we look at this passage, is there's three little minor points that we need to be aware of. And as we read the first one, you and I need to be aware of failure after great victory. You and I need to be aware of failure after great victory. It's been happened many, many times. We can see it in the life of the biblical stories, whether it's Elijah, great victory over 700 prophets, but then to find himself scared and alone, doubting God. We can see it maybe even in the teams of of sports where you'll have a, a great victory, maybe a blowout victory, only to find themselves the victim of another one in the next game. It happens time and time again. Even you might have found great spiritual or financial or maybe even relational social victories in your life, only to find all of a sudden very quickly to find yourself devastated as failure comes after great victory. What we see here is Noah begins to make a living by planting uh, grapes. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing in this scripture here that says he's doing anything wrong in planting grapes. I don't know what he did before, but it seems for some reason he chooses to do this. Now we can tell that this is sometime afterwards because he has enough time to to plant the grapes, let them grow and then pick them, let them ferment and become such a place where they have some potency to them because as he drinks, he winds up becoming drunk. What we see here is sin is still or present. Everyone, including those that God finds favor, will fall. Whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Peter, you and I need to beware is that even those that are chosen by God will fall into sin from time to time. Here's something you need to understand, is that past success does not provide assurances of future victory. It strengthens us for the battle, but yet it doesn't assure us. And many times there are people who are living their life out from their past successes and victories, never realizing that that does not give you a life um, pass for the future. You and I need to understand is that anyone can stumble into sin if not vigilant. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Apostle warns us to be sober-minded, to be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in this case, we're going to see it's going to devour not only Noah, but also several of his children and grandchildren. The sad point of this is the story here doesn't give us much information. I don't know why Noah is doing this. I don't know where his wife is. Maybe at this time, maybe she's passed. We don't know. We don't know what caused him to to drink alone and to uncover himself and get in such a drunken stupor that he's running around naked. We just don't know. What he's just telling us here is this is what he did. And in it, what we're going to see is just because you were successful in the past doesn't mean that there's going to be great success in the future. Many times, beware, after great spiritual victory, failure is right around the corner. There's nothing that that Satan loves to do than take the air out of the bag. The second thing that we need to beware of is of gloating over the misfortune of others. Beware of gloating over the misfortune of others. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So here they are, he's in some type of cave, some type of living thing, and all of a sudden Ham walks in and sees his father naked. And he told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And what we get, there is a lot of speculation that's going to come from this passage. And I'm not going to really go into those things because, again, it's not the important part of this thing. Again, all we see here is that Ham here does not treat his father with respect. Not only that, he kind of mockingly mocks his father as he boldly announces with delight as he goes out and says, hey, you can't believe what I just saw, Dad. Dad is just out there, drunk, just, just naked, laying all over the place. What we're getting from this passage is not only is he mocking his father, but he's also inciting his brothers to do the same. That's the connotation that's coming here, is that he's saying, hey, come here, take a look at what I'm seeing here. Look what's going on as we see that they're, they seem to be somewhere in the vicinity. Ham had humiliated and dishonored his father and he sought to make his brothers a party to it. And you and I need to be careful, because there are many times that we find ourselves in the same way. Especially when we see the sin of a brother or sister. It's very easy for us to start not... Oh, you know what? Christians... I'm sorry. Christians don't gossip, do we? We just give prayer requests. And we start talking about someone. And we're involved in it. And instead of praying for them or seeking a resolution, we really, truly are looking to titillate someone and and get their ears up and get them to join us in mocking them. But we don't call it mocking. But yet, in reality, many times, that's what it is. And you have to say that sometimes I'm guilty of this. Uh, last night, I don't know what I was doing. You know what, it was at the funeral. We had a funeral last night. And I'm sitting there. And I'm listening to some things that are going on. And all of a sudden, I realize uh, the Spirit does this. I don't know why He does this at odd moments. But He struck me that I have had a critical spirit this last month. struck me. Rob, you've had just a critical spirit about people. You're doing what God has called you to do. You're serving, you're loving, but yet you're serving and loving with a critical spirit. And that just struck me. And it's so easy to do. And what we do, what does a critical spirit do? A critical spirit wants everybody else involved, and so we grab everyone else in, and we do the same thing. That's what was going on here. In some type of way, Ham was inciting his brothers as he was humiliating his father. Did he cover his father up? No. Doesn't give us any inclination that. But we see Shem and Japheth, what do they do? They go to cover their father up. They're going to solve this solution. They're not going to give their father here a, a judgment call. They're not going to hear him berate him. But what do they do? They walk in and they give the picture of walking backwards so not to expose himself any further. But we also need to be aware of the long-term consequences of sin. And we see that in verse 24. For as soon as Shem and Japheth does this, There we see in verse 24 that Noah finally awakes. And when he awakes from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brother. Which is interesting. Because it wasn't from what we see, Canaan who did this, but Ham. But we'd already seen that it already shared with us that Canaan was also the son of Ham. So he was the grandson But Noah curses his grandson rather than his son. And he goes on in verse 26. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, my son, and let him dwell in the tents of his brother Shem, and let Canaan, my grandson, be his servant. By the way, that was me adding some things in there. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is an interesting passage. What we're seeing here is the opening of the Old Testament principle that children will inherit the consequences due to the sins of their father. And this is a scary principle, by the way, one that has kept me up many times at night. Moses will write in Exodus 20 that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, he writes, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Human experience confirms that immoral behavior on the part of parents often results in suffering for their children and grandchildren. This is one of the grievous aspects of sin, that it harms others besides the sinner himself. You know that, right? Human experience has taught you, in one way or another, this truth. But this general principle, by the way, is qualified in two ways. First, it applies to only those who hate me, speaking of God to those who persist in unbelief as enemies of God. That cycle of sin and suffering can be broken through by repentance. And the suffering comes to the third and fourth generation, while God shows steadfast love to another group of people, namely the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So you and I need to beware of the long-term consequences of sin. Let me tell you, there are many times that you could probably see my father in me, in his choices, and vice versa. And I'm one of those fathers that cries out, do not let my children suffer for my mistakes. Do not let my sin be inherited by them. There are many of us that struggle because of the same sins of our fathers. Why? Because we saw it in their lives, and we mimic it could be all sorts of things. Whether it's addiction of one type or another. But let me share with you, there is a gospel truth, is that cycle can be broken. And that cycle, thank you, and I'll, I'll bring that one back, and that cycle does and needs to be broken. But here we see that he says, Beware, sin has far-reaching consequences. The sins of Ham are going to be on, the, on his grandchild, Canaan. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us. Canaan might have been involved in some way, whether in being with his 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 father Ham and Sod or participated in the mocking. We do not know. It's all speculation. So the best thing for you and I to do for speculation when it comes to the Word of God is what? Just put it to the side. And we can do that over a cup of coffee. But here, let's transform what God is saying. What also I believe Moses is doing here is he's setting up God's judgment and the upcoming conflict that Israel is going to have with the inhabitants of the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses is given instructions concerning the descendants of of Canaan. When he writes, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it, and clears away many nations before you, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you, you will defeat them, Then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, and you shall show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, or give your daughters to their sons, or take daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following Me, and to serve other gods. Thus you shall deal with these Canaanites. For that is who Israel is going to face several generations from now. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. And later in the book of Joshua, we read that when the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not utterly drive them out. They spent the rest of their life subjugated as slaves. Sin has long-reaching consequences. Since that time, the land of the Canaanites and the descendants of those people have been subjected over the centuries by the Egyptians, the Hebrew children, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, Alexander the Great, and the Roman Empire. In recent history, it has been ruled by the Ottoman Turks and the British Empire and now sets in continued strife and war under corrupt dictators and monarchies. The curse of Canaan still finds itself in the children of that land. One sad and unfortunate, and frankly, I'm going to say, evil interpretation in the past has been to wrongly use this passage to justify slavery, racism, and other abuses against those with black and brown skin. And let me tell you, that was an evil interpretation. Their interpretation of that time was Ham was the one who became the the ancestor of those in Africa, which he did. But then that they were black, and so God justified that, and you could subjugate those people. Unfortunately, that, or fortunately, I should say, that is a wrong and evil interpretation of skin. For we shall see that the children of Canaan were not really located just in Africa, but along the coastlands of the Mediterranean. Many of his descendants were fathers of great nations, including many of the most ancients, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, Phoenicians. Many of those things we hold dear of what they've given to us. So the first thing I asked you to realize is that sin has far-reaching consequences. That's what we need to take from this story here in chapter 9. Let me give you a little line that's kind of a poem that's kind of... I'm not sure where it's come from. It's so old, it's lost its, it's, uh, it's um, author. But it's very important. He writes, sin will take you farther farther than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. And I believe that there's probably many of you that could stand up and say amen to that. Sin has far-reaching consequences than just your own life. And I don't know you, but as a father and now as a grandfather, my daily prayer is do not let land and pay for the sins of me. May that cycle be broken. And I pray that that's your prayer. And the only way to break that cycle is the gospel, is repentance of turning to Christ. The second thing that I want us to understand, and that's going to be in chapter 10, is that the world is one big family. The world is one big family. In chapter 10, you'll get a a, a portion of Scripture, a, a, a chapter that typically is called the Table of Nations. And you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 10, it starts, And these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born to them after the flood. As we read earlier, the command to Noah and his family was to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And here we see, as God does, how the earth now is filled. And he takes now the, the descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And I just want to make a couple of interesting points that, are, that is more just interesting to help us understand that the world really is one big family. For the Japheth came really what we come to understand as the Indo-European race. They settled mainly in Southeast Europe, Asia Minor, and Russia. Ham, who we spoke about earlier, mainly settled in Northwest Africa, the west coast of the Arabian Peninsula, and the Fertile Crescent from Egypt to Mesopotamia. That's mainly the biblical um, world as we know it. Shem is the Semites. It's the eastern lands that include modern-day Iraq, Iran, and parts of Saudi Arabia. From this line comes three great monotheistic religions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. In this chapter, Ham's descendants receive considerably more attention than those of Japheth and Shem, his brothers. Among them figure many of Israel's enemies, such as the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Philistines, and various Canaanite groups that will take center stage later in the narratives of the Bible story. But the point that Moses is making as he's writing this narrative in chapter 10 is that all the peoples and nations come from one man called Noah and his sons. In other words, there is truly one race. We see that in Genesis chapter 10, verse 32. Look at the last verse of that chapter, I believe. It informs us that these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in the nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Many anthropologists have recognized three to four basic races of man in existence today. And these races can be further subdivided into many, 30, uh, to as many as 30 subgroups. You have the Caucasian races the, uh, Caucasian races, the Mongolian races, which is northern Mongolia, Chinese, Indo-Chinese, uh, Malaysian, Polynesian, so Pacific Islands, but then also the Negroid races, which is the African, and also includes the Australian Aborigines. Many have speculated that his three sons must have been one of these three. I, I don't think I would follow that. That's probably taking Scripture much more, but what we find is that within Noah's family was the genetic markers to create all the different types of races that we see today. I just read something this past week that even in India, which is considered a, a uh type Indo-European uh, race, there is found in that country alone each and every genetic marker. You will find uh, Indians that are very, very dark and Indians that are very, very light. And all the those that are in the middle. I'm not a biologist. Uh, I don't play one on TV, and I don't pretend to be one here in church, so I won't spend more time in that. Those of you who who are interested in that can, can explore that a little bit more. But really what the question is, it doesn't really matter where you're born or to whom. What Scripture here is saying here is that we are all united in blood. If the human race were to follow their family tree all the way to the beginning, it would find its branches securely latched to the tree of Noah. And let me tell you, this is why this is important. For you and I, this should change the way that we see and consider each other. And obviously, this is something that has been very big in the news. We're very good at wanting to separate race and separate people and separate nations. Race wars and discrimination and biases and prejudice is something that should really be put behind us. Why? Because we truly are all brothers and cousins. If you were to take Thomas Jefferson, you could follow his bloodline back uh, to Noah. If you were to take... Uh, Genghis Khan and follow his bloodline, you would find Noah. If you were to take dust and follow his line all the way back, you would find Noah as is each and every one of us, good or evil. For we are truly one human race that God has created from one man. We read in Acts chapter 17 that God who made the world and everything in it gives to all mankind life and breath, and everything. And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having to determine allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. I love You need to underline that verse if you have it. Is that what God's designed is? He says you're to fill the earth and then you're to seek your way back to me but yet there is so much standing between people in doing so and we're going to find out that it doesn't take man long before once again he marches into rebellion against God and that leads us to the third and last point point. and that's God's judgment and the hubris of man in chapter 11 1 through 9 God's design was for the man to fill the earth. He tells us that it's going to be through these three sons. Chapter 10 tells us how the world is divided, but yet we see halfway through that chapter, it really hasn't taken place, and that's where we find ourselves. Hubris is a word that means extreme pride or arrogance. It is often dictates a loss of contact with reality and an overestimation of one's own competence or capabilities, especially when one person's exhibiting as in a position of power. And that's where we find the children of Noah several generations further. Look at chapter 11. Let's read 1 through 9. It reads, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Very important to understand. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plan in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heaven, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the Lord of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, there are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, From there, over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building of the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face over all the earth. If one day your little child comes to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, why are there all sorts of different languages? Why does everybody speak different languages? Why can't we understand them? You can go right here to Genesis chapter 11 to find the answer. We find the earth is united. It's one language. They all understand each other. Generations have come. They seem to be growing. They're filling. They're multiplying. But yet something is not taking place. They're not fulfilling the third commandment to fill the earth, to spread out. They're doing what people like to do. They like to congregate. And what we see here is they're starting to build a tower. Now, the tower in itself is not wrong. But the tower is a symbol of human autonomy. It was a direct rebellion of God's command to Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It points to human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. John Piper, in writing on this on this passage, he says that their key statements are in verse four. In verse four, it says, they aim to build a city. They aim to build a tower in the city that reaches to the heavens. Not that it will reach to heaven. Many times we expect, well, they're trying to get to the heaven. No. They're just trying to reach the heavens or want to reach it big. They aim to make a name for themselves, and they aim not to be dispersed over the whole earth. And he says the first two of these can correspond to the second two. Building a city is the way which one avoids being dispersed over the whole earth. And building a tower into the heavens is the way one makes a name for themselves. Look at what we build. Look what we've done. So the city and tower are the outward expression of an inward sin in their heart. The two sins are the love of praise. They want to make a name for themselves. And the love of security. If you build a city, you don't take the risk of having to fill the earth. You see, the sin of the builders were their refusal to live within God-given boundaries. What I love is Psalms chapter 14. Because we get an example here as they're building this, this tower. We don't know how far they got, but... They, must have, they had the technology. They had the means to do so. And as they're building it, we see that God looks down from heaven. I was reminded of this passage of Scripture, Psalms 14. In 1 through 3, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. Remember, why did he separate them to fill the earth? So that they could seek and find their way back to him. But here, he says, I'm looking and there's none that do so. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. These men in their rebellion and their disobedience said that there is no God. And God once again looks down. Piper continuing on this passage, writes that God's holy scorn is on display in verse 5. Notice it says that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. This is a holy scorn. The author mocks the tower by saying that God had to come down to see it. It was so small and insignificant that He couldn't see it from His throne. Of course, God can see everything and everywhere. But when you want to show the ludicrous nature of man's God belittling pride in his little achievements. He takes some risk and you speak with irony and you describe God as peering down in search of this great tower with its tops in the heavens. What we find from this passage of Scripture is that defiance of God's will brings judgment, cursing, and confusion. Confusion. And many of you have experienced in this life in your defiance of God's will. You found your life judged. You find cursing and you can find confusion. Instead of seeking your way to God, you find yourself blocked time and time again. This judgment answers the questions of why there are so many races and nations in different languages. For the first time, after a millennia, after several millennia, the human race will have difficulty in communicating. And that finds itself even today. There is a neighborhood that we struggle to reach because we cannot communicate effectively. If we were to arm ourselves with tracks today, there's only a few of us here that could go in that neighborhood and effectively share the gospel. That's a curse today. It's one that finds it in the hubris of man. Here there's a picture of the human race as it stands at this point of Scripture. Remember, God created all things good, but yet the fall came. He created us in perfect union, but then the world is destroyed because of corruption and violence. And here we are, He starts again, with a family, but yet again, here they are, generations later, divided by language, divided by clans and tribes and nations, and divided in their heart from God. What a sad state of affairs. If we were to leave this passage and end it here in chapter 9 of 11, many times we would say, what is the use? But let me tell you, there's hope coming. There's hope coming. Because as we'll go into next week, the rest of chapter 11 points to Christ as Moses begins to focus on Shem and his descendants. The narrative of the story is progressing with the future call of Abraham and the creation of the nation of Israel and the chosen seed, Jesus. I'd like for you to turn, if you would, to Revelation chapter 5. Because for many of us, we could read this chapter and say, woe is me, this just seems to repeating the cycle of sin and rebellion continually happens. Where is there any hope? What was once united is now separated by languages and race and prejudice and, and all types of biases. How can we ever see God in this type of manner? But let me tell you, this is not God's plan for man. In Revelation chapter 5, let me let's read this together. He says, Then I saw the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written on the a scroll written within, and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its, its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and, it, and, it, and open the scroll in the seven seals. Verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now I know that's all of a sudden you're thinking, oh no, here we're going, but just stay with me. Verse 7. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and listen to this, here's where it gets exciting, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation and you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What God has divided and separated in judgment and curse, God is going to bring together in blessings and in grace. Amen? Amen. That's the story that we find. It looks bleak here in, in, in Genesis chapter 11, but we point to the greatest gospel that overturns man's hubris and his desire to defy God. But you and I stand looking forward to that day when one day we will be able to stand and with all of our voices heard saying to the praises of God. Amen? Father, thank you for that. Let us look forward to that day. But Lord, your word is written to warn us of things of the past. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the sins and how the sin has a consequence. Lord, that we need to be aware of, uh, of, of the things of how sin just attacks our lives. Lord, we need to understand, Lord, that we are of all one race and one people created by you. So Lord, if there's anyone whose heart is has a wall of racism or biases or prejudice for any people of any different language group or or nation, or color. Lord, I pray that you would strike that down as we see that that's ungodly. And Lord, remake our hearts a one that's a love for our brothers and sisters. Let us reach out in despite of the curse. But Lord, let us not defy you in our hearts. But Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your promise is that you've made a way in which we can seek you and we can find you. We thank you for this in your name. Amen.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangefilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org.